0: All right, um, so we're continuing our class in the Kazari. Um, towards the end, we'll go over the overview. Actually, it's good. Could you have a spare overview? Yeah, so basically, as this is the end of the semester, I wanted us to rethink. I wanted us to recap what we've discussed briefly, and then we can next semester we're going to move on now move on to other topics within the Kazari. By this class and next class, we would finish the first section of the Khazari. The Khazari splits up into five different sections, and there's a lot to discuss in each one. But I've really picked out the key ideas that I think are worth discussing, not in a thematic sense. Like we're not going through free will uh, like different topics that you can do. But along the course of the narrative, different ideas are coming to light and we're discussing them just to have a quick look. The introduction, we spoke about the dream how the quest began, meaning it was initiated from a dream from an angel in this story in this dialogue between a king and a rabbi. um, We spoke about the nature of religious experiences as being a motivating factor for people to go on an investigation, as well as what grounds their religious life. Um, I don't know why I wrote introduction twice. We talk about the tools, it's supposed to say the philosopher. The philosopher was the first person who entered into the scene. What ideas we gleaned from the philosopher. Then a Christian and a Muslim came to, get to the game and how they differed from the philosopher. What tools the philosopher gave us and what the Christian and Muslim tried to offer us and why we liked some of it and we didn't like other parts of it. And what us, Rabbi Hurah Halevi described some of it as being problematic and some of it as being valuable. The relationship between reason and experience and how he felt that re- an experience needed a grounding in reason. Then the, um, there was a parable of an Indian king and the nature of experience from a historical standpoint as being a basis for committing oneself to an idea and a way of life and the existence of something. In this case, it was an Indian king. In our parallel is commitment to the Torah and um, its commitment to the Torah and um, the existence of God. Based off our experience with God, and that experience is resting on a rational—I suppose you could say—argument, but not argument to prove Judaism or anything quite like that. It's not to prove Judaism; it's to give a catalyst to the experience of Sinai. Not that it proves it happened, but it gives it a rational foundation that you can accept the experience. Now, obviously, there's a side to it where you're arguing—you're arguing for the truth of the experience but you're not proving it in any sort of classical sense. Make sense? I mean, it would make sense if you listen back to the classes, but for, for the purposes of overview, we then moved on to the idea of the divine essence. Why did we move on to the divine essence? Because the king asked a question. He said, the way you describe the religious experience of the Jewish people, the synatic event, where God and man communicated, the way you've described that is really specifically Jewish. How so? God took the Jewish people out of Egypt. God has a relationship with the Jewish people. God gave the Jewish people a particular purpose and mission. And he revealed himself to your ancestors. In which case, only you are obligated in this. And the rabbi is like, yeah, only we are obligated. And then a discussion then forms about, okay, but what is special about a Jew? Then we moved us into a conversation about best way of phrasing it is the soul, but not soul as in this disembodied part of us, but a soul in the more Aristotelian sense. He describes a hierarchy of existence, a hierarchy of existence that has its crown, the divine essence, the dava el-aki, the spiritual or the godly essence. The same way a plant has an essence that keeps it alive, an animating force, an animal has a unique animating force that is present in the animal and the plant, that the, sorry, that is present in the animal, that is not present in the plant. And the human being has another character trait or another essence or another animating aspect, which we would call a soul, that is present only in the human being. We call that reason, or at least Aristotle called call it reason. And that's normally where the story starts. Rabbi Huda he really takes it a step further. He then talks about the divine essence. Now, we spoke about why is this key? Uh, The reason I'm I'm repeating this as well is because on the previous recording, I didn't put it on there because the conversation got, at least I remember, we had to get slightly sidetracked into questions of racism and uh, uh, looking at ancient perspectives on race, and it got really weird. Not in a bad sense, it was a great conversation, but I didn't want to have it on the recording, which it now is, so either way. The point that we made there was, is that when we speak about chosenness, there is already something weird about that. Why me, not you? Which actually brings us into the conversation what I spoke about Matsushabas Matzah Shabbos, on the idea of, of unique, of, 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 of focusing on different values. But the idea of the, the Jewish people are special and amsugula, a chosen people, why? Now, how do you deal with that why? And different thinkers deal with that why in different ways. You get extremes where they're like, Jews are the only real people. That's a bit extreme. The, the two ones that I paralleled are Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, which we're discussing, and Rabbi Shumshon of Afol Hirsch. Rabbi Hirsch uses language, which I think we relate to more, it's more intuitive to us. Rabbi Yehuda Halevi is using more ancient language, but and it's less intuitive in terms of how we relate to the world, because he's intermingling religious ideas and scientific ideas, at least the way he understood science. And there is a value to the way he's doing it, and there's a value to the way Rabbi Hirsch is doing it. There is a different outcome. They're not, I'm not saying they're the same. Rabbi Yehuda Halevi is describing the very essence of a person. And that essence has a certain ability that leaps out from it. That ability specifically is prophecy. It's not that you become strong or you can fly or that God does special things to you necessarily. It gives you a potential. The same way your intelligence is a potential, that idea we mentioned of potential and actual is an Aristotelian concept. You live out your potential. Something is latent. You live out potential. Same Way with your intellect, you can actualize the intellect's potential. Same thing with the divine essence. You have it, you don't, you you can leave it dormant. You didn't actualize it, you aren't able to achieve any form of prophecy. Now prophecy has varying degrees according to Bional which is why I titled this The Variety of Religious Experiences, because the way Rabbi Huda, Our Lady describes prophecy has different levels of uh, degrees, some of which we might be able to relate to, some of which we will not be able to relate to. But there is an actual outgrowth of the divine essence from Rabbi Huda Our Lady's standpoint. From a Hershe standpoint, the idea of chosenness, there's not actually a practical difference. He's not talking about what you can do or you can't do. <laughs> Meaning he doesn't talk about whether you can get prophecy or can't get prophecy if you're a Jew or if you're not Jew from Rabbi Huda HaLevi's point of view, if you don't have this divine essence, which he grounds only in the Jewish people, you can't get prophecy. So only
1: Jewish people have this sense. Correct,
0: which is why traditionally it's been slightly controversial because Rabbi Huda HaLevi's way of developing this divine essence is, is, is kind of hereditary. It came from Adam and then it worked its way down to Noah, to Abraham and eventually to the 12 tribes and that divine essence stayed with the Jewish people. That's how he understands this, but it's not only hereditary, it's also your ability to develop it. Rav Hirsch's way of describing this divine essence or this nature of chosen is using the language of mission, but the parallels are stark. You have the idea that beginning with Adam, him failing or not being able to achieve that purpose. And then slowly but surely throughout history, the idea we mentioned at the beginning of the parasha, this universal ideal, and then it moving to a particular point. That particular point is the Jewish people. Now, what's the difference between the two? On some level, you could say are they completely different. One's describing the nature of a human being and the other one is describing your purpose. But I think if we focus the lens and get slightly existential about it, I think there's a very big similarity between the two of them. Meaning we're not just, they're not apples and oranges. When Rav Hirsch says that the Jewish people are chosen for a mission and a purpose, their very existence changes what I mean by that is if I tell you that you are in charge of putting away the cookies and you are not in charge of putting away the cookies, your very being is characterized by this purpose. You might not take it very seriously, but you are a different person. You have access to the cookies. You don't have access to the cookies. The idea of being given a goal or being given a mission puts you in a different existential mode. You are, you are called. And I think if we focus in on that and with, we could obviously go on about it, but the idea is there's something fundamentally different about who you are. You can call it spiritual, you can call it psychological, you can call it neurological, but the person is different. The world relates to you differently. Just to, to finish off the point, if I give you a, if, if um uh just uh, here, it's a good, is a very good cheesy example, uh, cheesy in the best sense of the word. This is a scarf, it's a nice scarf. Why, why is it a nice scarf? Well, first of all, it, it's kind of cool, but it's more nice because Rifka made it. My wife made it. Aww. Yes, so I said it's a bit cheesy, but this means way more to me than another scarf that might be more beautiful. What is that part of it? If you gave me an exact same one that someone else made, would I want it? No, it would be a different scarf. What's different? Is that a spiritual difference? No, but it's a difference that I'll, I'll, I'll pay a lot of money for that non-spiritual difference. If someone had, had hijacked this and held it hostage, I would pay more to get it back than another random scarf that looked exactly yeah. the same. What is that? That is what Rav Hash is talking about when he says chosen. Now, if we go to Rav Yehuda Halevi and we look at his perspective on divine essence, and he's using more Aristotelian spiritual language, I don't think it's so different. So, that's what someone said when I gave this in Chappelle's that the first response someone did. But I'm saying, I don't think so. Ooh. Is it no. intrinsic to this? No, it's about my mind and my mental relationship to it. Or really, is it? It's nothing to do with this thing itself. Where is it? When I mean, things happen
1: to me because you your scarf. like if you found that scarf, if your wife happened to make it and you just found it, you didn't know she had made it, it would be no different than any other scarf in your
0: closet. Correct, but now I know she made it. Is there anything different about this itself?
1: No.
0: I'm not so sure, because I'll do a, I'll, I mean, to say, it, yeah, for sure, it's it's in the mind, but my point being that it's this actual scarf. I
1: mean, as long as you don't know that your wife made it, it's, it's But once I do, or...
0: but once I do know, it's about the scarf as well. It's not just my mental relationship with the scarf. And there's the, we, could, we, could, we could probably go on. And I do definitely take your point. When we speak about Rehudal Navey's standpoint, it feels more intrinsic. And obviously I'm arguing for the other side because I definitely hear the question. You're right. Simply speaking, yes, it's more intrinsic. But I think if we, if we develop this side, we can also look at it as being very intrinsic. Simply me speaking, when I spoke about the scarfness, this is about God calling you. God is still part of the picture from Herschel's standpoint, even though he's not talking about souls. He said God went into covenant with you.
1: Yeah. When you say purpose, you mean the collective purpose or an individual
0: purpose? Collective purpose of the Jewish people. Individual purpose you might That's have. Purpose of achieving its goal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, or, or achieving what needed to be achieved by Adam, which wasn't. Now, how does that manifest in 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 Shabbos? would be a longer development, but yes, yes.
1: Wait, I'm sorry, can you explain again the relation? Like I get the concept of like scarf gets meaning and like you described me too, how does that
0: apply to this? I was using that as a as a as a practical example about how an object can have two separate objects and one be profoundly more meaningful than the other. Now, when it comes to, uh, the, exa- the parallel was that, of that was, when we look at a Jew as being fundamentally different and chosen, Rav Hirsch the language of God choosing the Jewish people.
1: Oh, because it's God's perspective.
0: A, a, oh, right, I didn't even get, take it down that point of view. When I said God calls, you're saying a divine perspective on, well, that's actually quite cool. So you're saying the divine perspective on something makes it super real. That's actually, that's a, but that, 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 that would take us off track. But yes, the idea of me having a perspective on this, you could perhaps argue this has an intrinsic difference, but if God had a perspective on something, is there a greater perspective? But yes, but it still sounds way more intrinsic by talking about it. the levels of the song. We're gonna read it inside, but the, what I'm gonna to do today, which we didn't do last time, is I'm gonna focus on the metaphor he uses. And the metaphor of Yehuda Halevi uses is really cool for describing the nature of the Jew. So, so if I make the,
1: the big difference between the perspective of Yehudah HaNavi refers is that? I mean, he, 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 the, it stems from the divine essence versus from the first, it was actualized in
0: like an agreement between God, between God and the Jewish people, between God and Abraham, like between God's decision to have a purpose at the beginning of time.
1: So it was more, according to the it was more of a, of a Purposeful choice and a connection made versus something that's already
0: there. Not necessarily, because you would say that God, my point of doing this, first of all, looked to himself as being the outgrowth of Rabbi Hurale, meaning there's basis to saying that he was copying him but using different language. But no, Rehash would say existence has a purpose. That's pretty intrinsic. Rabbi Hurale would say there's the divine essence that is manifest in the world. That's pretty intrinsic. So I'm trying to make them as similar as possible. Why? Because this sounds really eugenics. That's why. Not that uh, when I, I'm not saying that he's wrong, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not I, I can't take the, the metaphysical perspective, but it sounds in, in terms of polite conversation as Jewish people who have suffered horrifically through eugenics that that's really terrible. So, doesn't mean there's no value, but about talking about hereditary, there are values, nobility, uh, 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 uh um, expectation, other values that come along with whoever you're born from. But just the reason why I'm trying to balance it is because of the history, yeah.
1: Right. Also, uh, when you're saying like you're trying to like, are you trying to force like channel of he or like explanation into this? Because is that like intellectually honest? Like you're trying
0: Of to, course, like, I'm not trying to be intellectually honest. I'm trying to show that there is a similarity between the two ways of okay. talking about the purpose of the Jewish people. And they're similar enough that we can parallel the two of them. Obviously, there are differences. The biggest difference is you heard our lady says, look, if you're not a Jew, you don't get prophecy. You can't actualize it. However intellectual you might be, you can't raise yourself beyond the category of who you are. The same way a rabbit can't become a human.
1: Uh,
0: yes, that's tough for sure. You would either have to say doesn't have it wasn't real prophecy. Uh, the other thing, the parallel that people often bring is the Maimonides. Maimonides takes a completely different approach to prophecy. He looks at prophecy as being a natural phenomenon. Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi, it's not a natural phenomenon. Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi, it's a specifically Jewish thing. So his issue is describing Pro- and this this is a whole nother conversation about how these two divergent worldviews work. But according to Maimonides, prophecy is the highest intellectual level, which means a non-Jew can easily get prophecy. But when he says the highest intellectual level, he doesn't just mean a brain in a vat. He means in combination with ethics. So you have to be the wisest, greatest person, and then kind of prophecy comes. Well,
1: so so, so, so with,
0: ah so how does how does how does Maimonides answer the problem with Benlam? maybe at one point he was a really good person. Clever, no? Yes.
1: Um, I was learning yesterday about like, in Tanya talks about the soul garments and the soul and how a person's soul garments come from their ancestors. And so like, like, so if you have great, as great spiritual whatever, and you have great garments, they can uplift the other soul. soul If you come from like a bad background, and then like, even if your soul is amazing, but we've down like four soul garments. is that?
0: I have no idea, but just to recognize for every at least, but like six, seven hundred years between the two of them, what when you heard how talking about in the 11th century? He had, uh, he's not even talking Kabbalistically here. Right. Kabbalah, you could say you could see ads and seeds of Kabbalistic <laughs> ideas in Halevi, but he's talking, he's doing like hardcore Aristotelianism. Not Now, his extra addition is his point that he's adding there, but Tanya is like, like a whole bunch of stuff after that with like going, I mean, I mean you've got the, you've got the revelation of, the, ta- uh, of the, the the Zohar, you've got the Bahir, you've got the, um, you've, got, you've got, you've got the, the Arizal post, everything's like, that, that's like a long historical journey. Now,
1: yeah,
0: me, completely, or someone who's super intelligent and knows both of them beautifully and backwards and perfectly might be able to make a union, but uh, that would probably be slightly as naturally dishonest. This is going on later, honestly. Um, but um, it's interesting what another very famous Kabbalistic, that's known as a Kabbalistic Sefer, which wasn't a Kabbalistic Sefer. Have you heard of the Sifi Yitzira? So that's not a Kabbalistic Sefer, traditionally speaking. It's, it's like a, I don't know what the word is, a mathematical structural book about creation. Have you heard our lady talks about it, there's like a bit of a Pyrrhus on it. Sadia Sadyagon, another Jewish philosopher, speaks about it about numbers and the relationship between numbers and reality, and there's something very cool about that because mm. the most fundamental part of reality is numbers. Wait, but
1: so which rabbi talks about numbers and what time period? No,
0: it? so there's a book called Sefer Yetzirah, which is one of the oldest, more esoteric type books. Oh, I
1: have to study it it's
0: not no, no, no. This is a very <laughs> old book. The uh, the Talmud talks about it. It's uh, it's it, it's referenced in different places. Yeah, different people have different opinions. It's always ascribed to someone earlier, but different Jewish philosophers speak about it. Only later, we then now traditionally look at, at that book through the lens of later historical revelations. Now, people look at the Sapi Yetzirah through the lens of the Zohar or the Bahir. Does that make sense? Uh, another Kabbalistic text that came about at some point or another, which is also ascribed to an earlier writer. Ready to go? All right. The living soul, the intellectual soul, the divine essence that is above the intellect. The divine essence, Adam, uh, I'm going to read if I read yeah. something weirdly. Oh, sorry. <laughs> if I, uh, uh, feel, feel, feel free to correct me. I have practiced it, so it should be okay. But if it's not, don't be embarrassed to, to tell me I missed something out. Adam, he left many children of whom the only one capable of taking his place was Heather, which means Heather was the goody, Cain was the baddie, because he alone was like him after he had been slain by Cain through jealousy of this privilege. It passed through his brother, Chase. What's he doing now? He's describing the hierarchy. He's the hierarchy. He's describing the hereditary nature of the divine essence, starting mm-hmm. Adam, and then went to Hevel, and then went to Chase.
1: Speaking to
0: the rabbi. No. To the king. Trying to show where this divine essence came from. Because if you want to say, like Rav Hirsch, it's a mission that is that is working its way through history, okay. If you want to say it's an essence or a or a spiritual force, or I'm not exactly sure what you would call it, where did it come from? And why doesn't everybody have it? Who also was like Adam, being, as it were, the essence and the seed of man. Let me read that again. Who also, like Shays, who was also like Adam, being the essence and seed of man. You can see why I bolded seed in a minute. While the others were like shells. Meaning, there was some, this essence, is this seed was present with him. And everyone else was like a shell, okay? This essence of sheist then passed to Enosh, And in this way, the divine influence was inherited by isolated individuals down to Noach, They were compared to the heart. They resembled Adam, in which case, who were, who were, styled, uh, um, who were styled sons of God. Now, what two metaphors are we used so far? Seed and, shell. seed and shell and heart and body, body. that right, that's right. they were perfect outwardly, inwardly in lives, knowledge, their ability, likewise, full as the fix, the chronology, okay, fine. The, 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 the parable of the seed and the heart. What is the parable of a seed? Potential. Seed is a potential, but actually there's three components of the metaphor of a seed. I broke it down. You have the seed, you have the shell, and you also have the flesh. Within a seed. Not within a seed. A plant or a fruit metaphor has three components to it. You have the seed, and you have the shell that protects the seed, and then you have the fruit that is manifested through the growing out of the seed. Now let's just read the um, heart one underneath. The heart, Israel amidst the nations, is like the heart amidst the organs of a body. It is at one at the same time the most sick and the most healthy of them. So Rabbi Huda Halevi has two metaphors for describing the Jewish people. But focus on the heart for a minute. The heart can be taken in two ways. You can look at the metaphor of the heart as being, in isolation, the heart, the most special. Or you can look at the heart in reference to the body, in which case, what's the heart? It's allows what keeps the body going. In which case, what are the nations of the world in this, in this metaphor? The body. Now, the question about the purpose of the rest of the world has a different vision when you use the metaphor of a heart. The metaphor of the heart of a Jewish people, it is the most sick and the most healthy, meaning how the Jewish people are doing, it's what affects the heart. If we're doing well, then the, the body's doing well. If we're doing badly, then the body's doing badly, but it's giving reason and purpose for everything else. But more than that, the Jewish people's existence is also only meaningful in the context of of a body. Now, if we look back at the seed shell metaphor, there are some people who are like a seed, Jewish people. They have the ability to live out the potential of this divine essence, which is the flesh, the fruit itself. And if they don't live it out, what happens to them? But they, they retain a purpose. A seed, even if it doesn't live out its potential.
1: Being able to pass it down. Exactly. Yeah.
0: It passes it down. They didn't achieve or realize the potential, but the next generation might. Who do we have an example of this in Rabbi Hud historical overview? Whose daddy wasn't so good, but he was good? Uh-huh. Abraham. Who was his dad? Terah. Was Terah an oh, amazing person? No. He had the potential, but he didn't live it out. But I think we can take it further. The shell also. Can be meaningful, and it can be meaningless. A shell can be cast aside, but what do the shells or the outside part of a fruit also do? Protect they protect what's inside. They, ha- but also more than that. I think you could expand it even further. They also fertilize for the next generation. They also are that which is the ground for the next generation. The shell serves a purpose. It's not meaningless.
1: Yes. <laughs> of the seed because if the seed doesn't live out its potential like i guess i'm taking this very literally like if the seed doesn't grow into a fruit then how, how does it spread itself and like grow more seeds
0: but if you have a fruit and you've only got seeds in the fruit and you throw those seeds on the floor what happens then
1: no but the fruit only comes about if the seed gets its potential
0: yeah, fair, fair. we've broken the metaphor, but yeah, it's not perfect. But um, I suppose if we thought about it more, we could expand the metaphor uh, more and see what other aspects he's, he's, he's drawing into it. But I think that the point about these two metaphors is that why they're so grounding is that on one side that, that he's, he's giving voice to, you could easily take a really, what's the word? When it comes to the evening, I like lose my ability to speak. There's a, there's a word I'm looking for um, where it's like um, something centric. Ethnocentric, that's the word. Very ethnocentric perspective, which is just about you and your Jewish people. But that's not what Rabbi Yehud is doing. He's trying to describe the Jewish people's chosenness in the context of having a very unique purpose. But that purpose is meaningful in relationship to the rest of the world. Without the rest of the world, there is no shell. There is nothing that allows it to develop. And without the body, the heart is meaningless. These two metaphors for describing the Jewish people, because remember you heard our ladies writing this in the context of a non-Jewish world, he, he he opened with the Christian and the Muslim. And now we're trying to see how he relates to the outside world with this. Yes.
1: You know how this is when the heart is bad, the rest of the world is bad. Yeah. But, um, but a lot of the times you can kind of see that like when the Jews haven't been doing their best, that's when they've been conquered by the rest of the world. Like, You'd, meaning, where's this direct, like in real life, where is this direct correlation between the Jews being bad and the rest of the world? Like, it, it doesn't tend to be like that. It, it,
0: you know? I do hear your question. It, it's, it's an interesting thing, saying, okay, practically speaking, it's a nice, cute idea, but well, how does it live it out?
1: Yeah, like, you, you don't see that, <coughs> that when the Jews are, are um, down, the whole world
0: just, like, that cr- crying.
1: They can't
0: function, you know? So it's, it, it depends on how you look at history. And what lens you choose to look at history? Or what through.
1: would one example you think of so that would work
0: with it? So if, if the Jews are being conquered, the rest of the world, when we see it is doing badly, you could just look at it from a moral standpoint. If the Jewish people are not living up to their potential, which is being a beacon to the world to inspire the world to a greater place, you could argue that the rest of the world is doing badly.
1: Or well, for example, when the Jews do well, like when they're successful, when they manage to hold, that's a lot of the time when they get criticism, like for example Israel sometimes when when Israel succeeds it's kind of painted as
0: like a pirate over Palestine or something like... For sure but you could argue the world is a way better place now. In general the world is a better place to live in now than it was a hundred years ago. Does that make make sense? Meaning that and
1: that that can 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 be correlated with Israel. I, I
0: don't know. I wasn't around... 2000 years ago, the last time we were doing well. I don't know. When I say doing well, it means like we're doing well nationally, not like me doing well. Nationally, we were doing well. The world is a far better place to be in now than it was 100 years ago. Now, obviously, there's suffering in the world, but I mean, in general, the world is progressing towards a better place. People are suffering less. They're not based on Jewish ideas. I, of course not. Like uh, of not? Like, like no, normal. no, no, I'm not so sure.
1: Yeah, but let me give an example. Like, the world is in a weird way
0: is becoming more liberal, not more traditional. But, and, but but we would when you, when we when we look at liberal values, they're profoundly Jewish. Take a liberal value; it's basing it, sitting on off the of the <laughs> like assumption. The gay so, 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 so that's an express. For example, gay marriage is also sitting on a Jewish principle of love, compassion, yeah. love, and fairness. Now, what would a Jewish perspective say to that? It would say, "You're right. That is expressing love, but that's going too far in terms of gay marriage." Because what the meaning It's it's an idea that I discussed in the uh uh thing about the idea of um and how we retain self confidence in Jewish values in a world that doesn't look at them as being good and looks oh, at them as being,
1: gender. so, so, so both
0: so for sure, <laughs> these would be both. So, those if as the idea of equality and fairness. So family roles, the nuclear the nuclear, um, the nuclear home, the idea of traditional marriage being an ideal, on some level, there's something quite unfair about that. What does I do fit into a traditional role? What if I don't fit into the idea of a classical home? Why, why are we calling that the better one? So there's a balance of values. Not that um, fairness and tolerance aren't real values that we have to pursue. They're values you have to pursue in the world where there are multiple values competing, boundaries and structures and expectations on people is also part, are also values you need in a society. So the, the, the claim would be that the world is becoming progressively Jew, more Jewish. And when I say progressively more Jewish, also thanks to Christianity. Christianity did a massive part to play in that. The idea of charity, the idea of love, and the, a God being a god of love, all this was taken by Christianity and given to the world. The, the, I don't know, all over Africa and all over the world where Jews have never been, or obviously we've been, but I'm saying that, that, that these ideas were taken to the world. Now, the question is, in recent times, those ideas or specific values are being taken to their extreme. Now, as a Jew, we would agree that there's a uh, a value to that, but we could also say that the value has been taken too far. The example I gave Friday night, on Shabbos was a, an idea from a, an economist called Thomas Sol. He uses the idea of a violin player, that yes, it's unfair that some people are really good at violin. What do we do about that? Well, we could make violin illegal, and that would make that would get rid of the unfairness. That's that. That's the. I understand why you would want to not them not for them not to be unfairness because you care about people. But your that desire for expressing that one value at the cost of all other values leads to tyranny. You could claim the same thing when it comes to gender. You break down gender. Uh, people who don't fit into classical gender binary. Uh, feel they don't fit into classical gender binary structures, you could say, yes, it would be fairer to them for us to destroy the concept of gender. Right, but there's a cost to doing that as well. It's a question of balancing values, in mm-hmm. which case if we step back and say, okay, what is the Torah? You could claim the Torah is the, what do we mean by the mission of the Torah? Is how to balance values. Bless you, bless you. It's a longer conversation, it's a very tricky conversation, but um,
1: that's a, yeah, I think we can talk about the things that we learned in the other classes, like the seven Kanani nations. Like, in their times, people did horrible things, sacrificed children, raped women, and the society was okay with that. That was the norm. It was like, oh, my husband is not home, he's probably distracting some woman. Like, okay, I'm fine, I'll just rape for him. And like, today rape is still happening, murder is still happening, whatever is happening, robbery and even worse things. But the general society says that's a bad thing, which is already like, that's a huge step forward. So,
0: so, yeah.
1: The reason why most people think it's bad and the same like people 2000 years ago would have said, okay, it's fine, it's just my husband is prison uh, and whatever.
0: It'd Could be you... a tricky one with that specifically, because I don't think the it gets very tricky when we talk about yeah. things in this nature, but the person being taken advantage of definitely didn't think it was OK. Exactly.
1: But the general
0: society So you're correct. For sure, for sure. The general society is a, they, uh, there's a book. I've forgotten the name of the book. It's a philosopher of, um, of uh, a Christian philosopher. He wrote a book on he, he basically he became a Christian because he worked. He sort of realized from his perusal of history that he lives in such a Christian world. And when he studied the ancient world, he was horrified about how they looked at this. It's a very different world we live in than the Greco-Roman world, for example. Yeah. yeah.
1: Is it not like something with like the fact that you sort of gave out example? The fact that the like biggest aspiration of the boys for marriage, like to like, any traditional style of to be born in community couple. There was also something like that about like how good father's so cremated that like that was for,
0: like, for, But, the but for sure. And also by the way, this is gonna sound really strange, but on uh, for, Catherine recorded that to choose my language correctly but like, stop
1: it. <laughs> but that's
0: even worse to stop it but I think they say the, but um, but the idea of um when we're talking about values there's a value to that to, in a, a monogamous relationship it, that, that, that that's a value but then the question is at what point are values sacrifice in the pursuit of that These are complicated topics and Judaism has a perspective. The point I was making on the Friday at Mozi Shabbos thing, which was key, besides the idea that I mentioned that there's also dangers from the right side of culture that we have to look out for. It's not only left side of culture, the right side of culture that also has like dangerous trends that are influencing Judaism that we have to stand against. It was a very evangelical like influence on traditional American Jews because they hang around with a lot of evangelical Christians. But my point I was making that when we make this, stand it should be done with love and it should be done with empathy and it should be done and the way i phrased it you don't want to stand up for jewish values by sacrificing them by being an absolute appropriate individual in how you're speaking to people in the name of jewish values which is kind of paradoxical do you see what i'm saying It's like you're going to be heartless callous and insulting in the name of jewish values i'm like no you are also a thing love for humanity is also a thing. You're supposed to care about that. They're all people also made, and yet that's also an idea that you have to have at the forefront of your mind, which is also a value. And the balancing of values is the tricky one. And sometimes it hurts, it hurts because the value of fairness will be sacrificed in, in or, or lessened because of another value. Yeah.